Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Before we start to look at the text, um, I just want to say a quick thank you to all of you. Um, I really appreciate it. It's just so cool to be with my church family and to get to open up God's Word together and to just hear from it. And so I'm really thankful just to all of you for this opportunity. Um, I also, I want to say thank you to Pastor Aaron in particular. I'm just really thankful for all the many ways that he serves our church. I know that both he and Emily have been working so hard um, this last month and a half or so while Aaron's been in jury duty and they already do so much on top of that. And so I'm just really thankful um, for both of them and just for Aaron taking all the time to like look through sermon stuff and um, give really helpful feedback and just all the ways that he serves us. So just really thankful. Um, but with that, we're going to be in the book of Genesis chapter 29 today. And what we see in Genesis is this story played out in real time of what happens whenever you love something more than anything else, including more than God. And what the Bible calls that is idolatry. And so we're going to actually watch this played out in people's lives. Um, I remember in high school, I, uh, and still today, I love the show Friends. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you have watched it. Um, and there are two reasons that I really like Friends. The first one was, uh, I just thought it was funny, you know, it's a funny show. Uh, but the second and more important reason was I was in high school and I knew Alex at the time and I had a massive crush on her and I knew that Friends was her favorite show. And so I was like, I will watch Friends and do whatever it takes to like start more conversations. Uh, so I'm like watching, it's the first show I ever watched like every season of. So I watch all the way through Friends. Uh, but what I didn't know at the time was about the personal life of the guy who plays Chandler Bing. Um, so the actor's name is Matthew Perry. And I was watching an interview recently that was done with Perry. And he was talking about his whole life and like all these struggles that he's had. He talked about how when he was 14 is when he drank for the first time, drank a whole bottle of wine. Uh, and he talks about how uh, for the first time he felt this like deep joy. He describes it as feeling like he was in heaven that this must be how everyone else feels all the time. Uh, In the interview, he explains by the time he was 18, he was drinking every single day. Uh, Not too long after that, he gets cast for the show Friends. And he talks about in the interview, he thought that fame would actually cure him. You know, he figured if he was, um, if he had this notoriety, if everyone knew his name, if he got this star role, then he would actually feel whole inside. Um, But the longer he's on the show, the worse the things got. Uh, He was actually, he would show up, I think it was like halfway through the show, he would show up completely hungover, he was strung out on drugs. I mean, the guy was so famous, like while he was filming the show, he would go to these open houses uh, and he would actually rifle through people's medicine cabinets and take their drugs. And people would never suspect it was him. You know, I guess it's a good alibi. It's like, I'm famous, why would I do it? And so uh, he, by by the time, uh, by like present day, he talks in this interview about how he's been to 6,000 AA meetings, 15 rehabs. The things that he was looking to to fulfill him, alcohol, fame, drugs, instead of giving him this deep satisfaction that he was longing for, they actually tore his life apart. The reality is that it's actually dangerous to look at something and expect 
complete fulfillment from it. It can be dangerous to love something more than anything else in your life. Uh, what the Bible actually calls that is idolatry. You know, a- anything that you love in your life more than God is an idol. Um, an idol is the thing that you, um, that all your hopes are set on. An idol is the thing that you fear losing. It's a thing that you can't imagine living without. An idol is the thing that's constantly on your mind that like you can't stop thinking about. That's idolatry. It's a thing that you're putting all your trust, all your hope in. Like that, that's what an idol is. One theologian says that, the, that human nature is a perpetual factory of idols. We are constantly, our, our hearts churn out little counterfeit gods that we can bow down and worship. Uh, there are so many things that we're tempted to worship today. Uh, we, we could just go down the list of like power, approval, success, money. Uh, we could talk about autonomy, the self. There's so many things that w- we tend to worship. But in Genesis 29, we just see three idols on display. What we see is that Jacob, he idolizes romance. We see that Laban idolizes money. And then Leah idolizes family. Uh, and just the main thing I want us to see today is that we must love God more than our idols. God must be our greatest love. Um, so let's look at, we'll look at each of those three characters in turn. We'll go Jacob with romance, then we'll go Laban with money, and then Leah with family, yeah? So let's pick up with Jacob. So we start, uh, we know with Jacob that uh, he makes romance into an idol. We saw last week that Jacob was told by his father that he needed to go on this journey to marry one of, the, one of the daughters of Laban. So Jacob, he's been on this long trip and now we pick up in verses one through eight and we see that Jacob, he gets to this well. He meets these shepherds there, they're watering sheep and the shepherds tell him, hey, Jacob, one of the daughters of Laban is about to come to this well and her name's Rachel. And so Jacob knows like, this is my chance. I gotta go shoot my shot with this girl. And so what we see in verses nine through 12, uh, it, it shows us what happens when Jacob actually meets Rachel. And just looking at the verses, this order of events is so strange. Like it, four things happen. First, uh, Jacob removes the stone from the top of the well. The passage tells us that it took multiple men to remove the stone and Jacob does it all by himself. So Jacob's like flexing his muscles. He's like, hey, look at how strong I am, Rachel. Don't you see? Uh, he, Jacob's basically like the kid in youth group who would pick up as many chairs as he could to impress the ladies. Like that's Jacob, that's what he's doing right now. So he moves the, the stone from the mouth of the well. And then second, he waters all Rachel's sheep. So he's trying to serve her, impress her. Third, Jacob breaks down crying while kissing Rachel. And then fourth, finally, Jacob introduces himself. Like finally, he's like, oh yeah, also I'm your cousin, by the way. My name's Jacob, great to meet you. Like, this is so weird. Like he should have, I'm like, dude, lead with your name. Like don't, you don't know how to ask a girl out. So no one should be surprised that after all of that, uh, Rachel immediately turns around and runs home to her dad. Like Rachel's like, I'm out of here and runs home to Laban. And so we keep going through the story. And in verses 13 through 17, uh, we see what happens when, when Laban and Jacob meet. So verse 13, where uh, we learn that Laban actually has two daughters. Rachel's not the only daughter. She's actually the younger. Laban also has an older daughter named Leah. And we're told that there's actually some differences between these two daughters. Verse 17 
tells us this. It says, Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. The phrase, Leah's eyes were weak, is notoriously ambiguous. No one really knows. Like in English, it kind of sounds like, okay, does she just not see well? The Hebrew, no one really knows. What does it mean for Leah's eyes to be weak? There's a lot of different proposals. No one's really sure. But what is clear is that Rachel is far more beautiful than Leah by traditional standards. The passage says that Rachel, the passage contrasts the two daughters and says, Rachel is beautiful in form and appearance. Rachel is the woman that every time she walks in the room, she always turns heads. People always notice Rachel. She is stunning. Leah is the woman that no one notices, that no one cares about. So Jacob becomes obsessed with Rachel. He, he must have Rachel. Uh, in fact, what Jacob does is he actually offers to serve Laban for seven years in order to have the opportunity to marry Rachel. Commentators tell us this is a terrible deal that Jacob's making. The typical bridal price of, of that day in Near Eastern society was well below seven years of labor. So what that means is, what Jacob's saying is, Laban, I will do anything. I will give whatever it takes so that I can have Rachel, your daughter. What Jacob has done is he has put Rachel at the absolute center of his life. He's not thinking clearly. He's not trying to strike a good bargain. All he wants is Rachel. We have to ask, why would Jacob be willing to do absolutely anything to have Rachel, a woman that he has only just met? And I think the answer is this, that Jacob actually has a void inside himself. He has an emptiness that he feels like he has to fill. We know that Jacob, in in recent chapters in Genesis, we've seen that Jacob was unloved by his father. We know that he's now hated by his brother Esau. His brother Esau wants to kill him. It's likely that Jacob's mom was the only one who ever loved him. And now he's completely separated from her. Jacob feels alone and unloved. And so his answer is Rachel. He will do anything in his life just to have her. He feels like by himself, he is nothing. But with Rachel, he can have everything. I mean, Jacob's believing that with Rachel, he will have the fulfillment, the ecstasy, the salvation that he's always wanted. Like he is believing that with Rachel, he will be in heaven. And so like he, he goes through with the plan. Jacob actually serves Laban for seven years. He, uh, he, he makes a, an idol out of a romantic relationship. And then at the end of seven years, we actually see this in verse 21. This is what Jacob says to Laban. He says, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. Uh, notice two things in this verse. First, Jacob's already calling Rachel his wife. They're not married. They're not sleeping together. But Jacob's like, hey, Laban, she's basically already mine. Just hand her over. In the Hebrew, it becomes really clear. This is a demand. Jacob is saying, give me Rachel now. I want her right now. It's very direct. It's jarring. And so what does Laban do? Laban gives his daughter to her. He, uh, he throws this, this massive party. You know, he throws the big wedding feast. But we learn it's just a smokescreen. It's a cover for Laban's deception. On the wedding night, 
it was traditional. The father brings the, the bride to the, to the groom on the wedding night. And so what Laban does is he brings Leah instead of Rachel. Jacob goes to bed with who he thinks is Rachel. And then in the morning, it's Leah. This is an a astonishing act of betrayal. I mean, this, this is shocking. And so Jacob is furious. Jacob goes to Laban. He's like, he's like what, what did you do? He says this in verses 25 and 26. He says, what is this you've done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And that word deceived, the irony gets so intense here. Jacob's name in Hebrew sounds just like the word for cheater. If you remember, that's like, that's where Jacob's name comes from. It's because he is a cheater. And then even the word that Jacob uses here for deceived, when he asks Laban, why did you deceive me? It's almost the exact same word that his father Isaac used to describe Jacob. See, what Jacob did is he deceived his own dad to get the blessing, to get, you know, to get the, the money. And his dad was like, Jacob has deceived me. And now what Jacob realizes is the exact same thing was just done to him. The deceiver gets deceived. Jacob is getting a taste of his own medicine. He's been scamming and cheating his way to the top his entire life. And now the tables get turned on him. It all comes crashing down. Jacob has spent years waiting for Rachel to fulfill his deepest longings. And here's what Jacob teaches us. When you get in bed with your idol, it never satisfies you. Anytime you look to something other than God to be your ultimate fulfillment, to be the center of your life, to define who you are, it will never actually fulfill you. It can't, it can't do it. Um, romance is a good thing, but a terrible God. You know, especially when Alex and I were dating, um, and still now, but especially while we were dating, I really wrestled with, am I turning this relationship into an idol? I, I remember there was one drive that we had that we were just talking about our relationship and like our time with God and with each other and like just trying to parse through, are we making this relationship into a little idol? Like, am I loving God more than you basically? And I just say that just to say like, it's hard. Like romance is a good thing. Please don't mishear me. Falling in love can be amazing. Like that's not inherently bad. What's dangerous though is whenever we turn romance into a God because it can never fulfill us. What we see is that the gift can never replace the giver. God gives romance as a good gift, but we can never take it in his place. Maybe you're like us and you're really struggling with an idol of romance in your life. Maybe you see that in your own heart, in a relationship that you have. I just wanna give three things that we can do to kind of crush this idol of romance. The first thing is talk with more Christian, talk with mature Christian friends. You need to actually talk with mature Christians about your relationship. We can't just isolate ourselves when we get into these long-term relationships. We need to actually involve other people. And notice, I'm not saying like, just ask anyone. I'm saying, ask mature Christian friends. Like ask people who you know are walking with God. People who their lives look like Jesus. Those are the people who you need to go to, not just the person who's going to say, just agree with you and tell you, hey, I think it's great, whatever. Like you need someone who's actually gonna be real with you. Someone who can speak truth into your life. You need someone who can actually point out red flags. The reality is, I think many of us have been there. 
when you become infatuated with someone, you kind of, you willingly ignore the red flags, right? You stop seeing the bigger picture. You need mature Christian friends who are going to love you enough to speak truth into your life. Uh, you need them to, to help you. And you're not alone. The second thing that we can do to actually fight an idol of romance is to keep biblical boundaries. It, it really is shocking when we start to look at what the Bible says about relationships. I just want to reference briefly part of what Jesus says about romance. In, in the book of Matthew chapter five, Jesus talks about, he addresses this. And Jesus sets the standard so high. It really is, it, it's shocking to us to see the sexual ethic that Jesus has. Jesus doesn't just say, don't sleep together before marriage. He does say that, but that's not it. Jesus goes so far as to say, if you even have any lust in your heart, that that lust is the same as committing adultery. This is shocking. Like, I didn't say it. Jesus did. Like, these are the words of Jesus. Jesus is saying, even lust, even lust has to be put to death in your own heart. Jesus is saying the standard's so high. And so we're kind of left to wonder, why? Like, why, Jesus? Why, why do you put the bar way up here? And here's why. It's because Jesus knows that ultimately the thing that will satisfy us, the thing that will fulfill the longings of our heart, the things that we're searching for in romance, he knows that we'll never find it there, that those longings can only be fulfilled in God. What Jesus is saying is, hey, I want your ultimate good. I know it's best for you. So would you come and actually find that joy, that peace, those yearnings fulfilled in me? And so that, that leads us to the third thing that we can do to fight an idol of romance. Uh, the third thing is believe that God is more satisfying than romance. You need to remind yourself every single day of the divine romance that God has with you. This is so beautiful. God loves you so much that he gave up, that Jesus gave up everything on the cross so that he could win you back. What Jesus did is he suffered and died for you so that you could live and be satisfied. What we see in the gospel is that God has worked tirelessly for you so that you can be loved and accepted. God provides the intimate relationship that you're looking for. So actually believe that, rest in that, find peace in that. That's how we fight a romance idol. And so we see that's what, that's what Jacob has going on. Jacob has this romance idol that he's trying to fight. But we also meet, there's another important character in the story. So we already looked at Jacob with romance, but now we look at Laban. And we see that Laban makes a God out of money. Laban will literally do whatever it takes so that he can have more money in his bank account. Uh, just look at me at verse 15. Uh, we, we see when Jacob and Laban meet, pretty soon Laban's ready to just get down to business. Laban's like, hey, let's talk money. What am I gonna pay you, Jacob? It really is true. Your idol is the thing that you are constantly thinking about. For Laban, it's money. That's all he can get his mind around. We keep going in verse 19. Laban agrees to give up his own daughter in exchange for seven years of Jacob's labor. Laban is a terrible dad. Like what dad does this? What dad's like, hey, if you serve me for seven years, I'll give you my daughter, why not? Like Laban, all, Laban will do anything for money. He'll give up his own children for it. Verse 23, we see that Laban takes Leah to Jacob this, this is where it gets really sad. Commentators point out, it's pretty likely that Laban actually knew that he couldn't get the full bridal price for Leah. 
Remember, Leah's the one with the weak eyes. She's not as traditionally appealing or whatever. And so what Laban knows is, hey, I'm, I want to get my money's worth, which is a terrible way to think. And so what Laban does is he takes Leah to Jacob on the wedding night. And then we keep going. Laban's plan continues. Verses 27 through 29, we see that Laban has done all this. It, it goes further. He actually, he tells Jacob after all this, I will give you Rachel on one condition. You serve me for another seven years. All Laban wants is money. He wants 14 years of labor. He's willing, away to give, he's willing to give away his own daughters just to get it. This is terrible. Laban's greedy. He's living for his bank account. All he cares about is financial security. I think we see greed, not just in Laban, but in so many places in our society. I think there's really an irony about our cultural moment that we live in. I think living in our society, we have unprecedented prosperity. When we, when we step back to look at it, I was looking at this Pew Research study that they did. They're evaluating the global economy for 2020. They want to see how's everyone doing, basically. And here's the categories that they made. They said, globally speaking, if you make more than $18,000 a year annually, 18 grand, you are globally high income. That, should, that is so surprising. I, I don't know everyone's financial situation, but I would imagine like most, if not all of us, make more than $18,000 a year to live on. And like, just to put this in perspective, the same study talks about now, there are likely over 800 million people in the world who live on less than $2 a day, who are in extreme poverty. Like these people have less money every week to spend on their life than you probably spend on coffee every week. I mean, this is just stunning. We live in our society in unprecedented prosperity. We have so much money, and yet we're still unsatisfied, we're anxious, we're greedy, we're slow to be generous. The reality is our society makes an idol of money. Many atrocities have been committed just to, to meet the bottom line. Uh, just to, to be honest, I, you know, I think many of us could confess to making an idol out of money, just to speak from my own heart. There are many times I find myself so fixated on financial security. Every week I go in and I pay both of our credit cards. I write down the totals in all of our accounts. And it is so easy for my heart to just become fixated, to become obsessed with, you know, future plans. Are we going to be able to afford an expensive city like Boston? You know, how are we going to continue to be able to thrive here? And my, like, I just go down that rabbit trail and have to like stop myself of like, hey, stop, like, stop being so anxious about that. I would imagine many of you can probably relate to that. Boston's really expensive. We always get ranked as one of the most expensive cities in the nation. I'm sure many of you can relate to just anxiety and worries about money. There are so many ways that we can turn money into an idol. And so let me just ask you, what does it look like in your life? Where are you relying too much on money? Where are you letting it consume your thoughts? Where are, you, uh, where, where are you setting your heart too much on your finances? Maybe for you, you refuse to check your bank account because you know it's going to stress you out. 
I'm sure some of us feel that way. It's just scary. It's scary to look at our money. And so you just, you avoid it. You run from it. That, that means money is so important to you that you can't look at it. Maybe for you, you're the opposite. Maybe you're more like me, where you are constantly checking your, your bank account totals. You're always looking at it. You obsess over it. You need to make sure it's okay. Maybe for you, uh, you are constantly, maybe for you, if you've been in a long-term relationship, I'm sure you've had this argument, right? I am sure that you've had the money argument. Have you not? I feel like on TikTok, it's like every single week that I see the, the whole thing about like in every couple, there's the one who spends too much money and the one who always wants to save. Like it's kind of true, right? Like we, we all, we kind of all lean one direction or the other. And so you get in a long-term relationship and like you kind of just fight about it. Why is that? Why do we fight so much about money? Because we're making it into a God. We are saying it is all important in our lives. What does it look like for you to idolize money? Maybe you do see that in your own heart. You're relying too much on your finances. I just want to talk about a few ways that we can address a money idol in our lives. Here's the first way. Reach out for support. Like I said, Boston is such an expensive city. And I'm sure many people in this room, it can be really hard to make ends meet. Yeah? It can just be difficult to afford the city. Our church wants to walk alongside you. There's this beautiful picture that we get in the book of Acts chapter two, where it talks about in the early church, they were so generous. Like they had all things in common. They were always sharing their finances with each other. We wanna be a church like that. If you're struggling in your financial situation, please let someone know. Reach out to someone in your community group. Come talk with me. When we talk about giving, there's always that form that you can actually let us know about a financial need. We take that really seriously. We want to be a church that does benevolence well. So if, you're, if, if you are struggling in your financial situation, please reach out. We want to support you. Here's a second way to crush an idol of money. Pursue generosity. One of the best ways to make money less important in your heart is to just give it away. I found in my own life, it's like prying your, your fingers off, right? So that you, you, you can't hold on to it so tightly. You, it forces you to have a more open hand with money. People talk all the time about how philanthropy actually feels good. It can be so satisfying to people to give their money away. Why is that? God knows that for us to be truly satisfied, money has to become less and he has to become more. There's a reason that the Bible commands Christians to be generous with each other and, and, with, and with others because it's ultimately for our good. We should pursue generosity and there's so many ways to do it. You can support a friend in need like we've been talking about. You can give to the ministry of our church. There's so many good nonprofits in the city doing important work. Whatever that looks like for you, would you just consider what does it look like to be more generous to crush the idol of money in your life. Here's the last thing to do to crush an idol of money. Believe that Jesus is better than the American dream. Believe that he's better than the American dream. Here's what the American dream says. It says, buy a house, get married, have two kids, and then you'll be satisfied. 
Jesus says the exact opposite. Jesus says, I purchased your salvation at the cross and I made you a child of God so you would ultimately be fulfilled forever. Trust in that. That is so much better than the American dream. Go to Jesus, your deepest longings, what you're looking for in money, you will ultimately find in Jesus at the cross. He has purchased that for you. So believe in him, trust in him, rely on him and be satisfied there. We see it with Laban. Laban idolizes money. Jacob idolizes romance. And then we see with Leah, there's actually a third idol. What Leah idolizes is family. Leah shows us what it looks like when you turn family into a God. Uh, just look at me at, um, we see that in verse 30, we kind of start to pick up with this again. Leah, she gets married to Jacob. So she, she, she's married, she has a husband. But a week later, Rachel marries Jacob. As in, Leah had a husband to herself for seven days. And now she's a sister wife. Her sister, Rachel, who's always been outdoing her, who's always been in the light, she's now being outdone again. If you look at verse 30, it says this. It says, so Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. If you keep going, it says that Leah was hated. Does your heart not break for Leah? This is so sad. Leah's whole life, she has been unwanted, unseen, unloved. Her own father got rid of her. Her sister has always, she's always been living in the shadow of her sister. And now even her husband doesn't even care about her. Leah feels completely unloved and alone. But what the next verse tells us is that God sees. You look at verse 31, it says this. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. So God looks on Leah and sees her in her distress. And what God does is he starts to give Leah kids. And so we see Leah has a few boys back to back and their names are all significant. We kind of lose it in the English, but in the Hebrew, we see that their names are like, they're, they're very meaningful. She has Reuben, then Simeon, then Levi. So Reuben, his name kind of sounds like the Hebrew word for see. It's Leah's way of saying, God sees me. God sees the distress that I'm in. Then Simeon's name kind of sounds like the Hebrew word for hear, as in God hears me. God hears what I'm going through. And then Levi's name kind of sounds like the Hebrew word for attach, expressing Leah's longing for her husband to just be attached to her, to care about her. And what we see is Leah goes through, she has son number one, nine months of pregnancy, the, the, the pain of labor, and then Leah waits. Will my husband love me this time? And he doesn't. So she goes to kid number two, pregnancy, labor. Will Jacob love me? He doesn't. Kid number three, will Jacob love me this time? And he still doesn't. Leah feels completely unloved. Leah has been looking to her husband, hoping that he will ultimately fulfill her and he can't do it. I wonder how many of you feel the exact same way with your family. Maybe for you, you just wish that your parents would care about you, would tell you that they're proud of you, would say that they love you. Maybe you've always felt like your sibling was the favorite child and you've always just kind of been cast to the side and ignored. Maybe for you, you wish that 
you work closer with your siblings. You see the relationships that other people have with their siblings and your heart is just longing for that. You wish that you could be tight with them and just connect and like be close friends. Maybe you're wishing that your spouse would genuinely love you or that you had a spouse to genuinely love you and your heart is just aching for that, for that intimacy, for that close family bond. Maybe you're a parent and you just wish that your kids for once would be grateful to you and say that they love you and mean it. We, I'm sure all of us are longing for our families to be made whole and to be fulfilled. If that's you, I just want you to hear this from my heart. If you are a Christian, God, God sees you, God loves you, God hears you, God is with you. God's heart is for you. Like God is your father who deeply loves you. His heart is, is with you. He grieves with you in your pain and he, he wants to draw you close to embrace you to show you that at the cross, he has given up his own son so you could be made a child of God. God wants you to feel the warmth of his love and his tender embrace. We get to see this in Leah's life in such a beautiful way. This is what verse 35 says. We see that Leah's had son after son waiting for Jacob to love her. He never does. And so verse 35, Leah has her fourth son. And this is what happens. It says, and she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Leah says, kid number four, I'm just gonna praise God. I will worship God. I will look to, to him as my ultimate source of fulfillment, as the thing that will satisfy my deepest longings. I will look to God as my greatest joy. Even just the name Judah is so beautiful. The name Judah in Hebrew sounds just like the Hebrew word for praise. It's, it's Leah's way of saying, I will worship God above anything else. And what we see is that the story of Leah and Judah, it actually doesn't stop here. It keeps going. Judah especially is so significant throughout the Bible. Eventually, year, generations and generations later, through the line of Leah and Judah comes another mom. Her name was Mary. And Mary was just like Leah. She felt completely alone. Mary got pregnant uh, before she was married. God actually gave her the kid. And so her fiance, Joseph, was threatening to leave her. Mary felt completely unloved. And, and yet in that moment, Mary worshiped the Lord. She praised God. And what God did is through Mary, God brought the ultimate son, Jesus. Jesus is the one who never struggled with idolatry. Jesus never made an idol out of family or money or romance or anything else. Jesus was the perfect son, the one who always lived a life of worship to God. And what we see with Jesus is that Jesus went to the cross and he was, he was forsaken so that you and I could be brought near. Jesus was cast off so we could be loved and embraced. And the way that we get that is just by believing in him, just by trusting in him, we get all the things we've been searching for, the family that we're longing for, the things that we're looking for with all of our other idols. We find that through the cross. Jesus gives that to us. I love, C.S. Lewis has a way of putting this so beautifully. Uh, he says this in, in his weight of glory. He writes, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak 
We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making pies in a slum because you cannot imagine what is, what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. What God is saying to you is stop playing around in the mud. Those little idols that we toy around with, they will never satisfy. God is offering the metaphorical vacation at sea, the infinite fulfillment, the things that we are longing for. We find that in God. It's not that our desires for other things are too great. It's that we actually need to love God more than anything else. That's where we'll find the fulfillment that we're longing for. I had a mentor who pointed this out to me in such a striking way. I was in college. I was really struggling with an idol in my life. I honestly don't remember what the idol was, but I do remember what my mentor, Brian Davis, said to me. He looked at me and he was like, hey, Kyle, you worshiped your way into this. Now you need to worship your way out. That's how you kill an idol. You have to worship your way out of it. You have to love God more than anything else and be satisfied in him. That's how you kill an idol. We see this illustrated in such a beautiful way, actually by Tolkien in his Lord of the Rings. If you're not a Lord of the Rings nerd, just to catch you up on the story, there's like this, this one ring to rule them all. It was made by Sauron, the big bad guy. He's evil, he's taken over everything. And so the main character, Frodo, he goes on this long journey. He knows that he has to destroy the ring to free the land, to save everyone. And so at the end of the book, and or not almost the end of the book, and Frodo, he's taken the ring to Mount Doom. Again, I said it's nerdy, but he, uh, <laughs> he takes the ring to Mount Doom and he's standing on the cliff and the lava is right there. And this is his chance to be free and to save everyone. And he can't do it. He slides the ring back on his finger and it seems like everyone, that hope is gone. And then in comes this creepy character named Gollum. If you've seen the movie, he's the one who's like, my precious, that one, he's the creepy one. Uh, Gollum attacks Frodo, gets the ring. And while Gollum's celebrating, he actually slips and he falls into the lava. The ring sinks down, it's destroyed, and the land is set free. Tolkien then writes this. He says, Frodo was himself again, and in his eyes there was peace now, neither strain of will, nor madness, nor any fear. His burden was taken away. Won't you throw your idol into the fire? It will never satisfy you. Don't you want to be free of your fear, of the things that have been paining your heart? Don't you want to get free from that? God is promising he will give you peace. He will make you into the true self that he has always intended for you to be. Won't you throw your idol into the fire? Be free from it. See that Jesus, his death on the cross, gives you everything your heart's been looking for. Loving God is so much better than loving idols. Let's pray. 